It is so great to see you all again this morning. Thank you for being faithful to come and to learn and come around God's word together as we journey and as we seek him. Um, Let me start by praying this morning before we do start. Lord, you are our rock and our refuge and a very present help in time of trouble. And we can come to you continually. You've given the command to save us. You are our rock and our fortress. Oh, Lord, you are our only hope. Our praise is continually of you. There is nothing that we may desire that compares to you. Let our lips this morning talk of your righteous help. And by your Holy Spirit, give us deeper understanding of and joy in the gospel. Lord, we look forward to all that you're going to do this morning. Quiet our hearts, quiet our minds as we come around your word. Lord, let us humbly come under it, that you might teach us. Thank you, Lord, that you have told us that you are a teacher. And we ask you now to teach our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So each week we look at our notebooks to remind one another of our purpose at Wellspring. And we want to keep this focus in front of us so that we can know how we're doing. To know whether we've stayed true to that purpose or in our aim together. So turn over your notebook. And the purpose is as it is here, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So that's the aim. That's the goal. That's where we want to keep our eyes on. And then we have some tools to accomplish that purpose. And these tools are the three disciplines. So number one, you'll see, just listed is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Shepherding my heart is supplying what it is that my heart needs at any given moment. In Psalm 119, we hear the heart of a man who loves God and who loves God's word and is um, earnest for obedience. In Psalm 119.10, it says, With all of my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What he's saying is, God, I've sought you. I've sought you, Lord, with all of my heart. In my innermost being, with all that I am, I have sought you. I've pursued you and I've searched for you. And what does that pursuit produce? Well, he cries out in the second half of that. It says, don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me forget them. Don't let me just stroll away into a life of disregarding them and disobeying them. In seeking God wholeheartedly, he sees the danger of wandering from God's word. He sees the value of God's word and his necessity of his heart to be near it. Chris, would you or Jamie check the air? I don't think I touched it. I feel really warm up here. It might just be me. So wandering is really uh, passive, isn't it? Perhaps we don't have a clear destination or an aim or a goal, or it's like following after a child who just follows after whatever catches his eye, and he wanders this way and he wanders that way. Sometimes missing a day or two with the Lord leads to a week or two without meeting with the Lord, and you find that you are wandering. We'll see in this lesson today that we are vulnerable and that we are easily deceived, and we need to be near to the Lord. So as um, we, as those who have been born again, we can now be women who seek God with all their hearts. God's given us that new ability. We too must guard our hearts from wandering from the word as a child wanders. We cultivate a love for our God by the daily discipline of meeting with him in his word, of seeking him there, to know him, to worship him, to humble ourselves before him and to be laid bare. We can't love God if we don't know him, and we know him by his word. His word has been breathed out by him for us, and it's a wonderful gift he's given. It's a treasure he's given to us. So shepherding our hearts is seeking a meaningful interaction with God through his word and through prayer. The word of God is his communication to his children. The Bible shows us God. When we talk of shepherding our hearts, it's not constrained to time. It's supplying what my heart needs. It begins in our quiet time, to be sure, that time set aside to meet with God each day. 
but we have to be careful to watch over our heart continually throughout the day. We sure don't want to spend time with the Lord in the morning and then live the way we want to the rest of the day to walk in the flesh, as we learned on Sunday, or leave by, uh, or leave forgetting to worship the Lord for the many kindnesses throughout the day that He's given us. Right? Shepherding our hearts is twenty-four-seven responsibility, and it's a privilege because of what God has done, what He's made possible for us. So God's grace in the gospel has made that a reality. We're no longer slaves to aimless wandering. So that leads us into discipline too. The home, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for the gospel and for God. If we're feeding and nourishing our hearts, realigning our wayward hearts with his truth, especially the gospel, learning of God's character and growing in our affection for him, we have much to offer to those in our home and those who God brings to us. The words of wisdom will be on our tongue. As we soak ourselves in the gospel, we'll be ready to encourage others in the good news, applying it to every circumstance that comes along. But if I'm not, if you're not intentional about ministering to those in their home this way, with your heart for God and the gospel, then there is again where I can easily wander from his commandments. I simply don't take time to minister to those in my home, my family, my husband, my children, my roommates, whoever it is that you might be living with, laying down my own agenda, my own interest for the interest of those in my home, this caring doesn't just happen. I must draw them out with questions and conversation. This, is, this allows us together, perhaps, to see what's going on in their hearts as well. Proverbs 14.1 is a familiar verse. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with their own hands. So to be thoughtful and prayerful about how we live in our homes, in our closest relationships, where lives rub up against one another, where there are often so many needs and so many opportunities to deny ourselves daily, continually throughout the day, and to extend grace and to serve. Ministry and service in our homes, done with a heart for God and the gospel, are opportunities to display what the gospel has done in us first. And aren't there so many opportunities without ever leaving your home to do that? And that brings us to discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We've said it before, and we'll probably say it again, these disciplines are not sequential. You don't finish discipline one and then move on to discipline two, and when you're done with that or you master that, Then you go step into discipline three. As we are faithfully caring for our own hearts and those in our home, God will bring many opportunities to encourage women around us, right? Don't you find yourself drawn to women who you sense are drawing near to the Lord? And we must caution one another not to leapfrog over our hearts. Too often we want to serve in the church or a meet to disciple others, but our homes are not in order yet because we're not faithfully shepherding our hearts or ministering to those needs in our own home. So be careful against that. As we live out the one another's in scripture, the whole church is strengthened. And that means that we better display the gospel of Christ, the fullness of who he is. So today we're going to move on to a new lesson. Last week we looked at what the gospel does for our hearts, for our inner man. And we saw that the gospel makes us into new creations. And we look forward to our glorification as believers when we will be in that unmixed condition again, that sinless condition, and be at home with the Lord. But God in his wisdom and in his goodness and sovereignty has made a way to be born again into new creations, and he's left us in this mixed condition. Why would he do that? He certainly could have changed us from the unregenerate man directly into glorification and made us spotless and perfect, but he has chosen to glorify himself in our mixed condition through that condition. Do you see that as we are in this process of progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ, we must be dependent on him in our mixed condition 
His glory is seen and His power it is, is displayed through our weaknesses. We talked about the hope we have because of the conversion events, the gospel realities. And we talked about new abilities and desires, and we're going to continue to talk about that. And we talked about ongoing weaknesses of the new creation. That although the old is gone, nonetheless, we still carry a residue of weakness and sin. And this is the mixed condition that we talk about. But now, we are in a position of great hope. Because we can now fight against that sin that used to master us. We have that new ability. A slave doesn't battle her master. She serves him. And so the fact that as new creations, we can participate in the process of sanctification and that we are growing in our desire and our ability to battle sin by God's grace is evidence that we have a new master, a good master, God himself. It is then in this, our pursuit to know him, our master, that we humbly submit to him and obey our master because he's been gracious to redeem us, to save us for himself. Without him, we had no hope. It is not that I obey because it's the right thing to do or outwardly conformity to rules, but his love compels me now to submit to him, to obey him. And so today we move into a biblical survey of the heart. And we do this because God's word has a lot to say about the heart. By understanding God's concern for the heart, we position ourselves to benefit from his word as he has designed for us. So there's a story that Scott's used in Build before, and some of you may have heard it. But I think it's a good description of our hearts. Um, a four-year-old, a four-day-old baby was born with his heart outside of his chest. And he's battling. He was battling for his life. So there was a mad dash across India, um, 24 hours, 800 miles, by his desperate father and grandfather. Leaving his wife behind, they went to Delhi to try to save the child's life. He had a condition called ectopia cordis, which causes the heart to be abnormally placed during development. In this case, it was outside the body, and most babies within a few hours die. The biggest challenge for this baby was his heart. His only hope was for the doctor to put that heart outside of his body back inside. Spiritually speaking, what's similar about our hearts? Our biggest challenge is our heart right? That baby's biggest challenge wasn't his parents or the life he was going to live. And that's the same for us. My biggest challenge was not who my parents were or my upbringing or wealth or status, but my own heart before the Lord, my spiritual heart before the Lord. The major difference is is the baby's physical heart was outside causing problems. God says my heart is on the inside causing problems. Our only hope is to get that heart that is inside out. We are born in need of a new heart, and we cannot help ourselves. We are dependent on Christ to do that in us. God provided for that new heart at the cross of Christ. So everybody in that baby's life was not focused on um, his eye color or height or how much he weighed that day. But he was concerned about their heart. And we need to be entering into that lifestyle if we're not there. But we're all on a journey, right? That we're constantly concerned with our heart. Primarily my own heart. Not so that we become myoptic and we're focused on ourselves. But because we must understand the true condition of our heart in order to appreciate and be thankful for what Christ has done for our sinful hearts. So we're going to begin our study today, our survey, taking a look at what God wants us to know about the heart. What the heart is, its qualities, what it understands, what its call, its need. And we're going to look at all of that so that we are spurred on to embrace and pursue and rely upon that which God has provided for our hearts. I've said it again and again, and you're going to see throughout this lesson that God has provided for our hearts. So we're going to take our outline, the heart, a whole biblical survey of the heart. You're going to see a category, and under each 
uh, one, there's a number within each category. We're going to start in the Old Testament and walk through the Word into the New Testament. And the reason we do that is because God um, gradually unfolded His revelation to us, right? God revealed to Moses exactly what He wanted people of Israel to have, what they needed to have a saving relationship with Him. But we know He built upon that, and He continued to reveal Himself through time. So we want to walk through these subjects the way that God has laid them out in his word. So we're going to look at a really, really broad picture of what God says about the heart. We're going to look at a ton of verses. And some are listed, and we may go there, and um, we may not get to every one, and you can look those up later if you want to. Um, I'm going to just read some from here. We're going to open together whatever you feel comfortable with um, in keeping up. We want to let those verses speak for themselves, right? We want to feel the impact of them, verse after verse, hearing what God has said in the Word regarding the heart, my heart, and your heart. It's good. We're going to feel the weight of the wickedness of the human heart. And just be reminded that this was your heart before God rescued you and gave you a new heart. But it also serves as a reminder for us of the evil that still remains, the presence of sin in our hearts. You see, the power of sin has been broken, and the penalty of sin has been paid, but the presence of sin still remains. So question one, what is the heart? When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? The heart is the inner man, the inner person. It's you. It sums up who you are, inwardly speaking. We have the outer man, the physical part of us, and the inner man, the heart. So the heart is a place in which God reveals himself to us first and foremost. The heart is the part of us that is addressed by God. It's where we are evaluated by God. And the heart is the seat of doubt and hardness, and it's also the seat of faith and obedience. The heart is the center of our emotions, our thoughts, Our wills, it's the center of who we are. Our theme verse for Wellspring is Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So every word, every word, thought, will, emotion, deed, comes from my heart. So biblically speaking, there's a lot of overlap between the heart and the mind. We see this in the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So Jesus isn't dividing us into four parts and saying, love God with each part. Rather, he's saying, um, describing who we are from the inside out. He uses heart, soul, strength, and mind to underscore that we are to love him completely, all out with the very essence of who we are, and that overflowing into all that we do. God does his work first on the inner man, and that affects the whole man. Oftentimes, we may be tempted to work on the outer man, relying on our own strength. This is simply moralism, looking good on the outside, but having no lasting effect because the heart hasn't changed. Man is naturally content with the outward part of religion, with outward morality, outward correctness, But the eyes of the Lord look much further. He regards our motives. Proverbs 16.2 says he weighs the spirits. He says himself, this is the Lord, I am the Lord, the searcher of the heart, the tester of the thoughts. So when we say heart, we're talking about you. Not just part of you, but who you are at the core, who you are in totality. So therefore, the heart is the focal point of God's evaluation of you and of me. That takes us to question two. What does scripture say about the human heart? So at this point, we're speaking generally the condition of the heart apart from new life in Christ. And that's going to be true until we get way down into question six. So just keep that in mind as we uh, study. But you will see in some verses that this mixed condition we find ourselves, there is a residue, a presence of what the old man was. The overall thrust here is to show our need for Christ and to spur us on in our need for the gospel and his word. So we're going to turn to Genesis 6-5 together. 
The word gives us this description of the human heart by way of explanation of what comes next. God gives us the account of Noah's ark and God's plan to destroy the earth with a flood. A familiar story. In verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God is saying that every, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, any intention, any planned purpose in his heart, nothing that doesn't have wickedness and evil saturating it. Nothing, nothing. So do you see in that verse, evil only and continually? All in that short verse there. Man's greatest wickedness is primarily a heart problem. So the flood comes in the rest of chapter 6 and into 7, and it subsides in chapter 8, so they come out. So in Genesis 8:20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. They come out to worship. They're worshiping the Lord. That is a good thing. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man's because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God is saying that there's still true of the human race after the flood. A repeat of what he said in chapter six before the flood, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there are eight people left on the face of the earth now. And he's saying, as you worship me, as you come off a boat, there is still a problem. Man's heart is evil. So the point here is that the judgment of the flood did not fix man's heart problem. But God had a plan. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 9, as I read. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin? Well, the obvious answer is no one, according to God. The stain of man's heart is so great that we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. So we've seen that the heart is evil and that it's beyond its own ability to cleanse it. Let's turn to Matthew 15. And I won't read all of it, but I'm going to give some background here. Matthew 15. So in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes are very concerned about hand-washing, which is an outer man concern. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus responds and said, Here's the problem. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. They're not concerned with their hearts. So let's pick up in verse 15. And Peter asks, uh, sorry, Peter asks, Um, to explain the gospel, or explain the parable to us. So in verse 16, Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is telling us that there's a source of defilement, of corruption inside us. The heart is the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. So let's go a little bit further in the New Testament to Romans 1.21. Again, we're moving through the Bible looking for what God has said about the condition of the human heart. Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What is the proof of man's foolishness? It's this, that even though they knew something of God, they had no intent to honor him as God at a heart level, and that is foolish. And a foolish heart plunges a person into spiritual darkness. So we've just looked at five verses 
And this is what we've seen so far that God says about the human heart. Man's heart is evil. The heart is beyond our ability to cleanse it. It's the source of defilement within a person in his own heart. The foolish heart invites greater spiritual darkness. That's what God says about my heart. So the world says, follow your heart. Is that heart worth following? Absolutely not. And question three, is the heart alert to this devastating condition? Do I know? Does my heart know? Well, we're going to start back over in Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 16. If you have trouble and I'm off on my chart, please just raise your hand and give me a little heads up, but I'm trying to follow along as well. I don't want anyone to get lost. It says, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain of your land and season and the early rain and later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. So under the Mosaic covenant, there was blessing for honoring the Lord from the heart, from the inner man. There was a relationship between obedience and physical blessings and provisions. But listen, he says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, that you might turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Why would Moses say beware when he's speaking about abundance and blessing? Because the heart is easily deceived, even when surrounded by blessings, perhaps even more so. And that is why we, too, need to be cautious in our mixed condition. We can easily be deceived. I need to be cautious of me, inwardly speaking, when everything is the way that I like it. Because the heart is easily deceived, even at its best. When I'm following God and when I'm obeying Him, my heart can be deceived. Jeremiah 17.9 is a familiar verse. Listen again to what Jeremiah tells us about the heart. He uses some very strong language here. The heart is more deceitful than all else. So not just deceitful, but more deceitful than all else. And is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If we were to make a list of whatever we find that the, um, that's deceitful in the world, we'd have a very long list in just a short amount of time, right? And Jeremiah is telling us, that nothing can beat the heart out of the number one spot. It's that sick. It's so sick, it's beyond our grasp. It's beyond compare. We can't even know its own its condition. It's worse than we can possibly think. We saw in Deuteronomy that the heart is easily deceived, even at its best. And now we see in Jeremiah that it's the most, the most exceptional deceiver. So the next passage is Romans 16, again, 17 through 18. And so we're asking the question, is the heart alert to its devastating condition? Romans 16. Here in Romans 16, Paul is finishing out his instruction to his letters to the Romans by saying, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions, dissensions, and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. Why? Verse 18 says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So if we are unsuspecting people in our church, and there are troublemakers causing divisions and creating obstacles in the church that we're naive to, our hearts can be deceived by them. Let me read James 1.26 to finish out this section. There's one more aspect we have to look at. So James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So if I think I'm religious, but I don't control my own words, what comes out of my mouth, it's evidence that I have deceived my own heart. I am self-deceived. 
So is the heart alert to its devastating condition? And the answer is no, not apart from Jesus Christ. How can it be alert to its own devastation when it's surrounded by and vulnerable to and filled with deception? And we've seen the warnings to believers as well, haven't we? There's an ongoing residue of deceivability in us as new creations. So question four, what is the highest calling of the human heart? Go to Matthew 22. It's um, the New Testament repeat of Deuteronomy 6. Remember Deuteronomy 6, 4 said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Jesus takes that summary command of what the law was about and he repeats it to his disciples in Matthew 22. 36 through 38. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So they might be saying, what's the highest calling a good old Jew like me should be about? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. This, this is the highest calling of the human heart, to love God. So let's see if we understand this correctly. The heart that is evil, beyond cleansing, the source of defilement, that foolishly invites spiritual darkness, that's easily deceived even when it's at its best, is an excellent deceiver itself, that can be deceived by others and it can be deceived by me, and that is the most central part of me before God, the place that God examines and evaluates me, that heart. It's supposed to love God and love him not just with part of it, but with all of it. God, you know what you're asking. My heart is so filthy and what you've called me to is so high. That leads us into question five. Does God see this whole predicament? We're not going to look at every verse in this section. There are many. So listen to these key phrases from some of the passages you have listed. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 1 Kings 8, 38-39 Solomon has finished building the temple. He's praying for the people of Israel, appealing for God to hear their prayers. And in verse 39 he says, Forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God definitely sees the heart. He sees every heart. He's the only one who knows every heart. So yes, God sees the predicament. He sees the discrepancy between the heart's condition and his command for us to love him with all of our hearts. Psalm 44, 21 says, He knows the secrets of the heart. So let's turn to Proverbs 24, 11 through 21. I'm sorry, it's going to be 11 through 12. God is the only one who sees it rightly. If you say, see, we did not know this, that's deception because they did know. Does he not consider it who weighs the heart? We just saw that God weighs the heart. And does he not know it who keeps the soul? And will he not render to every man according to his work? Not only is God weighing the heart, Not only is he testing man, but he's weighing each one so as to repay, to render to each one according to what he does or doesn't do. So yes, he sees, and he sees the purpose of repaying. So Jeremiah 17.10, if you want to turn there, we looked at verse 9 earlier, and verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his way, according to the result of his deeds. We see it again. 
God not only knows the heart and knows mankind's predicament, but he searches each one for the repayment, what the man deserves. So let's turn to the New Testament, Mark 2, 6 through 8. It's a lot of flipping. If you can hang in there with me, it's a, a great springboard of things to come for us in weeks to come. So Mark 2, 6 through 8. I want to show you how Jesus displayed his deity with the same kind of knowledge of the heart. But some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, not saying anything out loud. They're reasoning in their hearts, right? You can do that. What does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? The scribes were just thinking these words, and yet Jesus knows their heart and their thoughts. Isn't that a scary place? The Lord knows our thoughts as well. And he responded to them as if they had spoken their thoughts out loud. Jesus knows their hearts, and he responds to them on the basis of that, of what was in their heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5. through 5. Let's see what Paul says. We'll read in beginning in verse 3. But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul is saying, I understand the analysis of the human heart. The heart deceives. So even though I don't see anything wrong with my heart, doesn't mean that I'm clean before God, because I can't see my heart accurately. But the Lord will come and disclose the motives of men's heart. And we want this. We need this. This is one of the reasons that we're so diligent with Discipline 1, seeking God through his word. It's through his word that he shows us what is in our heart. And in this, we can root out what is evil, what displeases him. We participate in progressive sanctification. So does God see this predicament? Yes. In fact, he's the only one who sees it truly as it is. And he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. And for the one who does not know Jesus, that is a frightening reality. So question six, what is the greatest need of the human heart? So we're going back to the beginning, Deuteronomy 10. We're going to look at this from two perspectives. First, we're going to ask, what is the need and who is responsible for meeting this greatest need of the human heart? And the second part is God promises to do for man what man cannot do for his own heart. We're going to do it. We're continuing on in our survey of the hearts. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16. Moses is talking to Israel. Now, Israel, what does the Lord require from you but to fear the Lord your God? Here it is again, to walk in his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today, for your good. And we're skipping down to verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses reminds the people of this beautiful relationship that the creator God of the universe has given them with himself. He has set his affection on them and requires that they love him, to walk with him and just love him with all of their heart. And then in verse 16, it's kind of a bombshell, he says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Their heart needs circumcision and they are commanded to do it for themselves. It's their responsibility to cut away what's evil, all that is keeping them from loving God rightly. You are the one responsible sinner. Now in Jeremiah 4, 14, this is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel, and God is still saying the same thing. 
In verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a command. Again, he's saying, do this. Or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's saying is to Israel, there's a need to be radical, to have a removal like circumcision of all that's wrong in your heart or judgment will come. That is a serious need. And I hold you responsible. And in verse 14 of Jeremiah, wash your heart from evil, Jerusalem. Why? That you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will you keep being this way? It's been a thousand years already. Here he's commanding the very thing we saw in Proverbs 20, verse 9, that we can't do. Wash our hearts. That was back in question two. And yet he's saying, you do something about your heart. You wash it. God has identified the heart's greatest need. It's a need of radical removal of all that's wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But he's placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Why does God do this? Well, Ezekiel 18, 30-32, listen as I read. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. See, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you're thinking, God, you want me to take the most important part of who I am before you, who I am at the very core, the part of me that burns all my thoughts and emotions and wills and desires, that part of me that you never overlook. You want me to do this? See, a Jew hearing this question had to ask. And the answer is yes. The command is, do this. That would be very uncomfortable to hear. And that was intentional. They needed to be uncomfortable with this command. Why? Because God was pointing to their need for a Savior, one who could purify their hearts, the only one who could purify their hearts. I'm going to read Joel 2, 12-13. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their heart. Verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. That was the custom when something awful happened to tear the clothes. It was a sign of deep sadness and grief. And God is saying, you need to do that with your heart. He's saying, return to me with deep sadness and sorrow for what you have made of yourself. Tear your heart at the very level of who you are. Show deep grief and sadness and brokenness. We see the same idea in the New Testament. So just that we understand that it is a New Testament command at a certain level for the believer, this is a mixed condition command. We'll see that, you can turn to James 4, we'll see that even in the New Covenant, the commandment is the same. But we'll see in this new creation, there's a huge difference in this command. We have a new ability. Because of the work of Christ, a new ability to purify our hearts, to renew our minds. So James 4, 8 Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've seen that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed, to be purified. To have all that's wrong with it, to be cut away like circumcision. To be torn with grief. To be made new. And man is commanded to do it. It is our responsibility. Now the second part of that question Having seen the greatest need is to be cleansed and that man is responsible for that and man is incapable in himself. Now we're going to look at this question from another perspective. Part two, what does God promise to do for the man that he cannot do for his own heart? Starting again in Deuteronomy 30. Here's where we find the gospel of grace running all throughout scripture. Here is our hope. Our only hope is in Christ. Deuteronomy 30 Verses 1 through 10, especially verses 1 and 6. 
So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And I'm going to skip down to six. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul that you may live. The old covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. You see it in the beginning in Deuteronomy. From its earliest days, from the giving of the law, when God was setting up covenant through Moses, they were to long for a heart that was able to do everything that God had said. From the beginning, the old covenant actually highlighted the need for a new heart, though, without doing anything to provide for it. God gave the command to circumcise your heart, and now he says, I will do it. So why did God give this command? And Because he's the only one who could do it, if he was, and he is. He says that Israel was responsible for this heart, and the burden is on you, he said. However, I will do it, because he's a merciful God. The command was not given because we could do anything about it, but to highlight responsibility to change it. The unbeliever hears this and being led by the Holy Spirit says, I can't do that. How can I do that? And God says, I will do it for you. That is the gospel message, right? Let's turn to Psalm 51.10. I know it's a lot of flipping, but I think it's so good for us to have our eyes on the word ourselves when you see it written. Psalm 51.10. David lived under that old covenant, and he felt that tension. He knew his God's evaluation of the heart, and he knew God's promise of a new heart. And he cries out to God to do that. Remember, this is um, after the sin of Bathsheba. So 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you hear how deeply he felt that tension? He knew it was beyond him, so he's crying out to the Redeemer the creator, to do in his heart what must happen, but that he was incapable of. He's crying out at a heart level with all that he was, all that he is. Backtracking again through some of the same books, seeing that God is so gracious in the very places where he's making the need of the heart known, he's laying responsibility to meet that need squarely on his people. He's right there giving them hope, promising that he will provide a most desperate heart needs. I love this. This was really encouraging to me, seeing it from the very beginning. So Jeremiah 31. Are you guys getting tired of turning? I don't hear many pages, but that's okay. Starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This is the promise of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have not experienced yet as a nation even today. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have a glorious day ahead of them when God fulfills his promises of the new covenant with them. A covenant in which he will focus will be at the heart level to do with the heart what the old covenant couldn't do, was never designed to do. You see Ezekiel 11, 19 through 21 listed on your outline. Ezekiel 11, like Jeremiah 31, is looking forward to the new covenant. So starting in verse 19, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out and give them a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh here means a soft heart, contrasted with a heart of stone that is fleshy and sinful and stubborn and unteachable, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. This is a corporate expression of what God is going to do them for them collectively. He will give a heart, a new heart, to his people 
Again in Ezekiel 36, God promises a new heart and a new spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God is so kind. He's so gracious. He is going to do the work. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both written in that time when he was actually judging his people and sending them into exile. And yet over and over again, he speaks words of hope to them. When God gives his people a new heart, his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. Do you see his kindness? Do you see his love for his children? Let's look to Luke 22, verse 15. We're going to go to the, um, the beginning of where that New Testament, or I'm sorry, where that promise is being fulfilled. Luke twenty-two fifteen. 15. So we see Jesus here eating the Passover on the night before his crucifixion. And he said, familiar passage again. I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. You can see that the cross is on his mind. That's where Jesus is focused. Verse 16, For I say to you, I shall never again eat this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. He's making it clear that his death is imminent. And verse 19, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you, it's the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is taking Passover supper, transforming it into what has become for us the remembrance of his death. He's inaugurating the new covenant that he would die to bring about. So we're getting near the end. Let's turn to Acts 2. This is after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. The blood of the new covenant has been shed. The Holy Spirit had come on the disciples, speaking in tongues, speaking great things of God, and people were speaking these great things about God in their own language. They want an explanation, so Peter gets up and gives his first sermon in Acts 2. Looking down at verse 36, Let all the the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children... And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God himself has called. That is good news. He's Lord. He's Messiah. He's, and these people are listening, and they are the ones who have crucified him. The new covenant in Jesus' blood has now been inaugurated, and the Holy Spirit has been poured on, out on all who are present. And what happens at the heart level in those who hear? They were cut to the heart, it says. They were pierced. They were wounded deeply. They experienced conviction at the level of the inner self. The heart is changed at the preaching of the gospel. There is power in the gospel of Christ. So the work that God had promised is now beginning. So we saw the greatest need of the heart is to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. Why does God command sinners to do um, something with their hearts that they cannot do? It's because he puts the accent and the responsibility on our guilt. And the way the heart changes is he pleads with his own ability. He pleads his own ability to change. He's cut to the core and he cries out to the only one who can give him a new heart. To God through Christ and trust in the work of Christ on his behalf. We're responsible for the unregenerate man on our chart, right? God does the work. He reveals our need for a Savior, and he gives understanding that we can't accomplish this. I can't change this. I can't wash myself. Now that one trusts in God. He trusts in the finished work of Christ in the place of the sinner. 
So we are responsible for what we have become, and we are responsible to do something about it. That does not God hinder God's process, though, of doing for the sinner what he cannot do for himself. Because it makes the one who God is working in, who the Holy Spirit is working in, say, I can't. Will you please do it for me? It makes us cry out to God. It makes us look away from ourselves when we realize that our eyes have been opened by God to see how devastated our heart is and how deceived we are at the inner man. Now, when our eyes are open to see that, and God says, you're accountable, we cry out, God, save me. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. I am done with myself at this point. I'm done playing church. I'm done playing religion. I'm done with me. And we cry out for God's grace in the gospel to do what we can't do for ourselves. Change me at the heart level. I need a new heart. It's our story. It's everyone's story who has believed. This is the gospel. It's why Jesus shed his blood to pay for all that we're responsible for, for all that you're responsible for and all that I'm responsible for, that we can't pay ourselves, which many will pay for in eternity in hell. But he suffered in our place so that we, by his grace, could be made new at the inner man level, at the heart level. That's good news. What a great God that we serve. In his word, he paints a very, very dark picture of who we were. And then he brings light. And we need to walk ourselves through this over and over and over again. We need to take ourselves back on this journey and take each other with us, right? Reminding one another where we were once in darkness, now in light. And marvel again every day, continually, over and over and over again. Look what God has made me. Look where God has brought me, where God has brought me. Not a work of my own. My great God and my great Savior, He has transformed my heart. So question seven. This is our purpose at Wellspring. This is what we are here. We're going to pass through the Bible one more time, remembering Deuteronomy 6. So number seven is, what is God's provision for our hearts that need to change or have been changed? Let's see what God says. I won't read Deuteronomy 6, 4 again. We've heard it. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, so this is so that their hearts now are thrust up against, how am I supposed to love God like this? Do you ask that of yourselves? How am I to love God like this? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is God's provision for our hearts that has been changed in the gospel. His word. That we would have his word pushed up against our heart, against that inner man. Ezra 7.10 is a great passage. Ezra understands this. He was a scribe long after Israel went into... Um, after Israel was sent into captivity, and now God was letting them return to the land that he had promised them, that he had given them. Ezra understood that the heart of God's word were to be in full contact with one another. In verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Here's the Old Testament version of shepherding your heart. Ezra set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach God's word. That's what we're talking about at Discipline 1. Ezra knew his heart needed to be in contact with this word. And so we ask ourselves, do we, do we understand that our hearts need to be in contact with God's word continually? Let's look at Psalm 119.11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 10, with all of my heart I have sought you. This is the key. It's what it's all about. Our hearts need God. Desperately need God. It's always been that way. It was this way for the old covenant believers, and the heart needs God. Notice what he says next. It's not just kind of a spirit, any kind of spiritual experience, right? He says, don't let me wander from your commandments. Why? Because my heart needs you, and you are revealed to me in the commandments. 
Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. The psalmist understood that the only way not to sin against the Lord, who loves him, is to treasure his word in his heart. He esteems the word. It's his treasure. It's what he values. And he treasures it in his heart. There is nothing more precious to him. And the psalmist sure isn't describing a casual or occasional interaction. You can see that you have some verses from Proverbs listed there. We're not going to look there, but these are the pleas of a father also exhorting his children to have his God's word in full contact with their hearts. So it's not just us that need to be fully engaged with the Lord, but it's our children's hearts and all those that we meet, right? Again in Jeremiah 31, 33, and God says he's going to put his law within them and on their heart, I will write it. So God commands, get this word near your heart. And then he said, he's the one going to do the work. The new covenant brings the heart and God's word into new relationship unlike anything ever before. Luke 8, 11, Jesus tells the parable about the farmer sowing seed on different soils, then gives the parable the meaning. The parable is this, the seed of the, is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. The enemy knows, and the enemy has an interest in this. He knows that God's provision for our hearts is his word, and he doesn't want us anywhere near that. He doesn't want us to believe God. In three of these soils, the word gets snatched away. It sprouts, but it dies, or it gets choked out. But in verse 15, we see the only good soil. We know how to get that good soil, right? We are given that good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast and bear fruit. Jesus' intent is that God's word needs to be in full contact with our hearts. The answer for my heart is Jesus' suffering. And where do we see that best? In the gospel. Jesus is the one who takes away our sin and makes us new in the inner man. Hebrews 4 tells us why. Why is God's word the provision for our hearts? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of our soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is God's design for his word with us. It would become near to our hearts, and we would allow him to use this as a surgical tool. Allow it to reveal the thoughts and motives and intentions going on in my heart. That's the only way. This is the only way we will ever be able to discern what's going on in our heart. Remember, we're deceived. We need this word. The word is to be in full contact with our hearts continually, constantly. We need to realign our hearts and minds with his words. What happens when you don't read your Bible for three weeks? Or you read your Bible, but you fail to engage with the Lord through his word? We should be terrified. Will we naturally grow spiritually? We won't. We will drift. We will wander away, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, right? Bind my heart like a fetter, right? God's word is his provision for our hearts, and he is a wise God and a loving father. This is what he's provided. What does our inner man need more than anything, even this new new condition, this mixed condition? As women who have been born again in our mixed condition, we can be deceived. We heard that. But what is different in this, this is that this new inner man has been given a capacity for God, by God, to know him. We have a capacity to know the God of the universe, to love him, to pursue him, to obey him. But he tells us that we still have to watch over our hearts. And we won't be done with this until Jesus comes back or we see him face to face. So what's the whole point? What is our conclusion? If we understand who we are in Christ, what he's made us into, if we understand the heart, the inner man, then we'll recognize our need for this word as well. That we need it more than anything in this world. That we will treasure it. We'll need to bring our inner man into full contact with God's word all of the time. Constantly, continually. 
And we needed to do this prayerfully and worshipfully in a way that's dependent on him, right? To reveal himself to us through his word. And we're going to keep talking about this for the rest of our wellspring together. Let's pray. God, we do need you. We recognize that we are in desperate need of you and that you have made a way. You have given us your word. And this word is to be brought in full contact with our hearts continually, constantly. Lord, I pray that you would increase our understanding of that, of our need for you. Enlighten us, Lord. Increase our affection for you. And as we bring our hearts to your word, under your word, give us an insatiable hunger and thirst for you. Show us who you are through these words. Show us our hearts through your words. Give us eyes to see where that residue of that old man is still hanging around and what it is that we need to realign our hearts, our minds with your word. Help us to honor and glorify your name. You are a wonderful Savior in providing for our greatest need. You have done for us what we could never do ourselves. And we are grateful. We are humbled by that. You, We once walked in darkness and now we walk in light. We were once enemies of yours and now we sit at your table. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray now as we go to our discussion groups that we would care for one another well, that you would remind us of all that we have learned in Scripture and um, our great need for you. Thank you for providing a way. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.